Listen, if you need to be saved, I'm just going to cut to the chase, all right? No, let, me, let me rephrase that, if you need to be saved. You need to be saved. If you ain't saved, you need to be saved. You ain't going to get to heaven without being saved. You're not going to get to heaven without being born again. That's what Jesus said. We preached about hell last week. That's our default destination. You ain't got to do nothing to get there. You were born in sin, shaping in iniquity, just like I was. We all were. Nobody measures up. Nobody merits heaven. Uh, heaven is a choice that you make by receiving Christ as your personal Savior. He's the only one that can free us from the debt of our sin. Listen, God doesn't just, God doesn't just arbitrarily take our sin away. Um, sin has a price. That price has to be paid, and Jesus paid that price on Calvary. And that price is appropriated to our lives by our faith in Him. When we submit and surrender our life to Him, um, that is appropriated to us. He takes our sins upon Himself, places His righteousness upon us, and we are saved. We're born again. He puts His Spirit in us. Now listen, you can be saved anywhere, anytime that God calls you. That you hear the voice of the Spirit beckoning you unto Christ. Um, I, I was saved in my in, in, in my 14 by 70 mobile wide or double or mobile home. It wasn't double wide, it was single wide. Um, I, I knew that the Lord was calling me to himself that night, and I felt like if I rejected him one more time, that would be the last opportunity that I ever had. Um, the on, my only regret about that night is that I hadn't done that many years sooner because God called me many times to salvation and I rejected him. So let me say to you at the beginning of this service this morning. If you've never been born again by the Spirit of God, if you've never ex had a personal encounter and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, um, you don't have to walk out of here like you came in here. Your sins can be forgiven. Your name can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Heaven can be your eternal home. Don't put it off. Don't wait. I don't care where you get saved. I just want you to get saved. Um, I wouldn't take nothing from my journey now. Even with the trials and tribulations that come along with being a Christian, the life that I live now is so much more, so much more fulfilling, so much more peace-filled, so much more joy-filled than anything that I had before Christ. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Nothing in this world um, is worth losing your soul over. And I want to tell you, I, I, I let my friends and those people that I, that I hung out with every day and did the things that they were doing and I knew was outside the counsel and will of God um, I let them keep me from coming to Christ for a long time. Not that they were pouring anything down my throat. It's just that I felt like if, if I'm not doing what they're doing, they're not going to have any part of me. And I wasn't willing to forsake them and to follow him. But, but Jesus made a promise in his word. Peter said, Lord, we, 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 we laid it all aside to follow you. And Jesus said, I, I mentioned this Wednesday night, Jesus said there's no man that's left anything, not houses, not land, not fathers, not mothers, not brothers, not sisters, um, that won't receive a hundredfold in this life and in everlasting life. He, he, he will give you more than you can ever have without him. If you need to be saved, don't let this day pass you by without bowing your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been telling you we're going to jump off into this Revelation series. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about Easter Sunday yet. I'm still praying about that. I may take a break for Easter Sunday, but then again, I want, to, I want you to know you can preach Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection from any book in the Bible. Um, the, all through the book, there's a scarlet thread of redemption that's been woven for us. Um, everything about it is about Jesus, and so we could preach him from anywhere, including this, these passages uh, in Revelation. But when you start, when you think about Revelation, the, the the word that immediately comes to all of our minds is future. 
When we think about Revelation, we think about a knowing the future. And listen, knowing the future is an intriguing subject. Um, knowing what's ahead is something that we, that, we, that we yearn for, I think, sometimes. Um, not knowing the future is one of the things that causes us the most anxiety. And so knowing the future is an intriguing subject. And, 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 and I would say probably men are right that, that knowing the future really is, is unknowable to man. We can't really know what tomorrow holds. My wife's favorite song is, I don't know about tomorrow. I don't know. In fact, the Bible tells us that we ought not to worry about tomorrow, that we ought to just live our life uh, in this day and trust him for our tomorrows. But uh, it, it is true that man can't really know the future. Men can make some educated guesses about the future. Um, men can make some vague predictions about the future, and some have, and it's intriguing to read what they've written and how some of that's coming to pass. Um, but it's educated guesses at best. We don't really know what the future holds, but God does. Um, he knows past, present, and future. In fact, he exists outside of time, so he sees it all as one. God knows it, and the good news about it is that God does reveal some things to us about the future. Um, Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says that the Lord God does nothing except he reveals his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. Um, God doesn't do great things in the world except that he is revealing those things unto um, his servants who are the prophets. And, and God has a perfect track record. What God has said through the prophets has taken place. What God has foretold would happen has taken place. Um, the prophets would declare it hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before it ever came, and God would do exactly what he told the prophets that he would do. So he's got a perfect track record foretelling the world's most important events. And the Old Testament prophets spoke, they, they spoke very specifically, very clearly about things that would happen to the earth's people, for the earth's people, um, for good and for bad. He, he, and he didn't just talk about Israel. He talked about other nations of the world, how he would raise them up, use them for his purpose, and then bring them down. Um, the book of Daniel is full of prophecies of kingdoms that did not yet even exist that would come to power and that God would use them for his own Glory In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, God set a 120-year clock, and the alarm to that clock was a global flood. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, um, God predicted the Egyptian bondage and the duration of that bondage 300 years before that bondage ever happened. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 29, Moses predicted that the people that inherited the promised land would many years later turn away from God. That's the book of Judges. And the kings and the chronicles, you can, you can read where God's people went into rebellion against him and were judged by God. So God's, God's got a track record of telling us what's ahead. And the book of Revelation is, um, a, a huge part of it is about what is ahead for us. The Bible told us a whole lot about Jesus' first coming. If you read the Old Testament prophets, they told us when he would come. They told us where he would come. They told us how he would come. They, they identified all kind of details about Christ's first coming. Woven into those details about his first coming were also hints at his second coming. In fact, I think one of the reasons that the nation of Israel rejected Christ is they expected him to do everything that he was going to do at his first coming. They did not differentiate between the first coming and the second coming. They, uh, I think Isaiah chapter 61 is a good place to look at the first passage of Scripture that Jesus 
um, that read from in the synagogue that we have recorded in Scripture. And, and in that passage of Scripture, he forecasts his first coming, uh, his second coming, and the millennial kingdom all in one. It, it's all packed in there together. And those prophets didn't see the valleys that existed between those important events. Um, but Revelation kind of helps fill in all the gaps. Revelation um, helps, it helps us to fill in those valleys uh, between those peaks of prophecy. Um, God gave us a lot of important details about the second coming of Christ in the book of Revelation. Genesis is about creation. Revelation is about the consummation of all things. Um, Genesis is the beginning. Revelation uh, is the end. It is the finishing of God's plan and purpose. And you can just look at all kind of contrasts that exist between Genesis and Revelation. In, in Genesis, paradise was lost. In Revelation, paradise is regained. In Genesis, there's a rebellion that begins against God. In Revelation, there's a rebellion that ends forever against God. Um, there is a, in, 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 in uh, Genesis, sin begins to abound. And in Revelation, sin is forever eradicated. Uh, in the book of Genesis, death begins and reigns. In the book of Revelation, death ends in defeat. One of my favorite verses in the book of Revelation is that there was no more curse. Sin has been taken care of. Now, Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 provides an outline of the whole book. When he said, I want you to write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. What you have seen is past tense. I want you to write what you have seen. The things which are is present tense. What's happening right now. Um, and then what the things um, which shall be hereafter is the future. Now, I, this is just introductory to this whole book. But I'm, I'm going to give you a basic outline of what Revelation looks like. And I believe it's written in chronological order for the most part. Um, chapter 1 is the past. That's what John saw. Now he's writing it down. It happened and he's writing it down. That's past. Write what you've seen. So John's writing what he saw. Then he said, write the things which are. That's chapters 2 and 3. That is the church age. That is the age that we're living in right now. And then when you get to chapter 4 and, and, and through chapter 22, that's all future. But very specifically, 1 through 3 is the church age. 4 through 18 is the tribulation. And 19 through 22 is the second coming of Christ. Um, and then the, 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 the day of judgment and then... Um, the eternal kingdom, the millennial kingdom. All of that is, is uh, just a simple outline of the book. Um, today's more introductory than it is anything, but it, I think there's some important things to take note in the introduction to this book before we just dive right in it. So we're only going to make it through the first eight verses this morning. But if you'll begin reading with me, I'm going to read it section by section and preach it um, as I go. Revelation chapter 1 Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy... And keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now this is just like when you, most of the books that you read, whether they're a novel or, or, or whether they're fictional or whether they're 
um, autobiography or whether they're um, a self-help book. Most every book that you've got has a prologue to it. It's essentially just laying the foundation for what you're about to read. Well, this is the prologue of the book of Revelation. And he tells us in the first two words what the point of the book is. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation. When you think of the word apocalypse, we automatically think of destruction, don't we? When, when, when I say the word the apocalypse, we think about the tribulation time. We think about that period of awful destruction that, um, that comes along about Revelation chapter 6 and goes through um, chapter 18. That's, that's all we think about. But the word revelation in this passage is literally comes from the Greek word apocalypto. And what that word means is literally an unveiling. It means to take the cover off of something. It means, uh, it means that this book is the, the full disclosure of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and of what he's going to do. This is filling in all the gaps. This is telling us all the details um, that exist between his first coming and his second coming. This is what we can expect. This is the full disclosure of who Christ is. Now we saw him in the Gospels. He's the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. What Revelation tells us is that he's the line of Judah who executes the fierceness of the wrath of God upon the wicked of the world. And so we've got the full unveiling. We've got the taking the covers off of who Jesus is. This is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said that the purpose of it was to show his servants what is ahead. God is revealing again like he did in the book of Amos. He is revealing his secrets unto his servants, the prophets, and they're to hand that off to God's people so that they can see and know and understand some of what lies ahead. To show his servants what is ahead, revealing those secrets to them. And then he used the word shortly. But if you look that up in Strong's Concordance, a better translation of that word shortly is quickly, that these things are going to happen suddenly. Um, now, if you, re if you read that shortly and you understand that John wrote this, um, 2,000 years ago, you might say, well, that ain't true. Um, but the, 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 the more literal definition of that word is, and it goes along with what Jesus said, that his second coming would be like lightning from the east from the west in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. We see that language all the time. So that word shortly is better translated, um, the things that will quickly come to pass. I want you to know what's ahead because when it begins to happen, it's going to happen very, very quickly. I thought this was interesting. There's a process. This is how John said the revelation came to him. God gave it to Jesus. This is the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God gave to him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. He sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So it's communicated from God to Christ. Then there's that term angel. That, that term can be used to mean a lot of things. It simply means messenger. In most cases in the Bible, it is referring to a heavenly messenger, an angel like we would, that we would consider an angel. Uh, we're going to read some passages probably next week about an angel among the churches, which is probably not a literal physical angelic being, but it's probably the pastor of those churches. Um, so that word is translated differently in Scripture. It simply means a messenger. And so it came from God the Father, was given to Jesus Christ the Son, and was communicated to John by an angel. That I am, I'm, th This is a speculation on my part, 
Um, but I believe this is the Holy Spirit of God that is communicating with John the things that were given to the Father, um, from the Father to the Son, through the Holy Spirit, and then given to John. That's the process of revelation. I believe that's what's happened since the beginning of time. The Bible said God, when God created this world, He looked upon it. It was wasted and chaotic. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. Uh, and the Bible says um, that, that the Spirit of God moved upon the waters, and God said, there's the Word of God. So you've got the Trinity involved in the communication of truth um, to the world. And I believe the Trinity is involved in verse uh, 1 and 2 in this, that, that God has revealing His secrets to the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit, that revelation is coming to John, who is then giving it to us. All Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed it, and it became life in the Son, and it became knowledge to us through the work of the Holy Spirit, and then we share that um, with one another and are utilized um, as tools in God's hands. And then there's that promise. As far as I know, this is really the only book in the Bible that gives a specific promise that is associated with reading it, um, understanding it, and applying it uh, to our lives. Now, I believe that blessing is implied all through there, but this, this passage, uh, it gives a very specific promise that those who read it, those that, those that hear it, those that read it, and those that keep the things that are written therein are in for a blessing. And the time to do that is now because the time is at hand. Um, I'll say it again. If the Lord Jesus Christ is calling you to himself, today is the day of salvation. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. The things that are going to happen are going to happen quickly. Um, there, there's, and I don't believe the rapture is the second coming, but I believe in the rapture, and I'm going to preach that in Revelation chapter 4. Um, there's, there's coming a time when Jesus is coming for his church. There ain't going to be no heads-up warning about that. There's not going to be, I'm going to give you three days to get right. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, that the trumpet of God will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise, and those who are alive and remain on the earth will be called up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That's going to happen in an instant. Um, Paul said in the moment in a twinkling of an eye you're not going to have time to get ready so what Revelation says is blessed is the man that reads this that hears this and that heeds this word because when that time comes you'll be glad that you did let's continue to read verse 4 John to the seven churches which are in Asia grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Let me just pause right there and say I don't, I don't believe there are seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. I think the best way to read that is the same way that Isaiah chapter 61 when the Spirit of the Lord is coming upon Jesus. There's a sevenfold revelation of the Spirit. There's a sevenfold manifestation of the spirit that is at work and it was at work in and through Jesus and it's at work in and through our lives um, he equips us to do what God has called us to do so when you see that term seven spirits before the throne of God that is symbolic of the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit um, that proceeds from the throne of God and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the first begotten of the dead. Let me just stop right there. This is a salutation. When you write a letter to somebody, you say, you, 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 
if they don't know who you are, you introduce yourself to them. You, get, you give a from line and a to line. That's what we're doing. We're, John has given the salutation of this letter, and he said, uh, I am writing this letter from, this is from John. I'm writing it to seven churches. Now, I'm going to mention this several times so you don't have to hang on to it real tight right now. There were more than seven churches in Asia. In fact, there are some, there are some churches that have letters in the Bible that were written to them that are in Asia that are not mentioned in the book of Revelation. But I, I, there are several things that I believe that, and when we get to the, those letters to the churches, I'll say this again so you don't have to really grasp it all right now. But these are seven literal churches. You'll find out in the book of Revelation that seven is a significant number. And it simply means perfection. It means a fullness. It means a completion. You'll, use, you'll, you'll see the number over and over. There are going to be seven seals that are unrolled from a scroll. There are going to be seven trumpets that are going to sound that are the wrath of God. There are going to be seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. There's a lot of sevens in the book of Revelation. And all of them symbolize the completion of something, the perfection of something. The Holy Spirit is perfect. He is the sevenfold Spirit of God that, 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 um, that does the work of God in the world. But there are, there are th these churches, I believe, are literal in the sense that John could write these letters and send them to a literal church that existed in that day and in that time. But I believe they also um, represent all churches, that they can represent any church at any time in this world's history. And, and, and saying that, they can also represent any Christian at any time in this world's history. The seven is just there as a number of perfection. There's another interesting um, rabbit that you can chase with this, and I think there's some validity to it, but I don't, I'm not going to pull it out a whole lot when we're studying it. But that they represent seven periods of church history. And I think that that begins to come into light more clearly when you get to the Laodicean, um, to the Philadelphia and Laodicean churches, where the Philadelphia church was a really pure church and the Laodicean church was a church that had a name that it lived but was dead. And I think those are the two churches that represent the end of world history. That the, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is still alive and vibrant and doing what it's been called to do, but there's also an apostate church that claims to represent the Lord Jesus Christ um, that he is on the outside of the church looking in, knocking. We'll get to that when we get there. Um, but, he, but he told us um, that, that, the, that the author of this book um, was coming from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. There is an offering of grace and peace. That's what he is wishing for the readers as they read this book. John to the seven churches in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven, whole, uh, seven spirits before the throne of God, and from Jesus Christ. So John is writing to the seven churches. He is offering to them, as he writes this book, grace and peace that comes from the Father, by the Spirit, through the Son. The Trinity is, again, illuminated in this text for us. The Father is the one who was who is, who was, and who is to come. The sevenfold spirits is the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, who is the Holy Son. Now, I, I'm not going to stay long right here. Um, God's grace. You can define God's grace like this. Here's what God does when he gives us mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Mercy is simply that God doesn't give us what we deserve. I told you what we deserve last week, and I, and I'm, and I mean that. This is what I deserve. 
I deserve hell. If God had treated me as I deserved, if God had judged me as I deserved to be judged, I'd be in hell today. Amen. I would be. That's what I deserve. But God didn't give me what I deserved. He gave me forgiveness through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he didn't just forgive me of my sins. He gave to me eternal life. That's grace. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve joy. I don't deserve peace. I, I, don't, I don't deserve everlasting life. But that's what God's grace does to me. And so John says, the offering for you who are reading this book is to have a multiplication of grace and peace in your life. God's good will for you. God's good will to you. God's good will um, working in you. And peace is the evidence and assurance of that grace being manifested in our life from the Father, by the Spirit, um, through the Son of God. And then in Revelation chapter 5, the second part of verse B says that Jesus is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to skip verse 7 for right now and go to verse 8. This is written in red in my Bible, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking to John, who says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. This is John's exaltation of Christ. Now, Christ is exalted in every book in the Bible. Christ is exalted through all the Gospels. Christ is exalted through all the epistles. God, Christ is exalted throughout the Revelation. But at the beginning of this book, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, the full disclosure of who Christ is, John makes this sevenfold declaration of praise. And what does he say about him? He says that, he says that Jesus is the faithful witness. Now you're going to see that term again come up in the book of Revelation, especially towards the end of it. He's the faithful witness. What does that mean? It means that everything about him in word and in deed is truth. If you want a revelation of God, if you want to know what God said, what God meant, what it looks like to live a life that is dedicated to God the Father, that doesn't do anything but what God says, um, that doesn't say anything except what God says, if you want to see a life that is lived um, for the glory of God the Father, you look at the life of Jesus Christ, He is the faithful witness in His word and in His deeds. He is altogether truth. Everything about God is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said that all of the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Christ in bodily form. He's the firstborn from the dead. Resurrection. He's the first one to die and be resurrected never to die again. Now I know there were some other resurrections in the Bible. They all died again. Lazarus died again. Um, the Old Testament people that were that were that were resurrected died again. Jesus is the first person in God's word to be resurrected, never to die again. He conquered death. Um, he was not just resurrected from the grave. He conquered death, never to die again. He is the firstborn of the dead. Um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he became the first fruits of them that slept. He gave um, promise of resurrection to all life because. Of his resurrection. He is the ruler of kings. We express that sometimes as the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the lover and redeemer of us. He is the lamb of God who loved us and washed us from our sins. 
in his own blood. He is a maker of kings and priests. He has made us unto God kings and priests. That's every saint. Every saint has access to God. You realize this? As filthy, wretched, rotten a sinner as all of us used to be, when you came to Christ for his cleansing blood, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, and you can march right into the throne room of the God of this universe, the creator that slung the stars into the sky. I walked out one night this week, and it looked like it looked like diamonds on black velvet, and I said, my God did that. And listen, because of what Christ has done for me, he's made me a king and a priest before my God so that I don't need another man to go to him for me. I can go right on into the throne room all by myself and lay myself at his feet in worship and adoration in thanksgiving in supplication and he hears me and he cares about me and he cares about you. He's the one who loved us and who washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests. He said that he is, he, to him is glory and dominion. That is, to him who is glorious and reigning, both now and forevermore. Amen. And then Jesus speaks up and gives the last, the last of the sevenfold declaration of praise. And he gives it to himself. Now, I'm, I'm going to say something about that right here. You know that you know only... If I stood up here and started praising myself, you'd get up here and walk, you'd get up out of this place and walk out. I don't like to hear, I'm going to tell you something, when an athlete gets up and starts talking about how good he is, I want somebody to beat the brakes off of him. I, I don't, I can't, I can't, I, just, I don't do well with that level of arrogance. None of us, the Apostle Paul said, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about the cross. I'm going to boast about what Christ has done for me on the cross. You know the only one in all of creation, in all of this universe, who is worthy to praise himself is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm the Alpha. I'm, I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I'm the one that is, and the one that was, and the one that is still to come. And Jesus called himself the Almighty One. Now, anybody that has problems with acknowledging Jesus as God, he is. He said it about himself, and I'm going to use the same reasoning that C.S. Lewis did. If Jesus said that about himself and it not and it's not true then he was either a lunatic or a liar. So we can forget about all that business about Jesus being a good man who taught good things and who had all kind of wisdom. Jesus declared himself to be matter of factly as the beginning of things, as the ending of things, as the one that has always been the one that still is, and the one that will be. Almighty. When you look up that word almighty, um, it is that uh, almighty is all-powerful literally, but, but it also means in, it, in, in the context that is given there that he is, that he is always present, that he is always powerful, uh, that, he is, that he is always knowing of all things. And so this is a declaration of praise of the infinite perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it ought to be our song. I, I tell you, I don't know of a better song you can sing than the one that John is singing here. 
I'm talking about who Jesus is and everything that Jesus has done and is doing. Um, it, is, it is a declaration and exaltation of praise now and forevermore. And then we're going to go back one verse and I'm done. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. The expectation of Christ. And you look at, look at the words there. John said, behold. He comes. It's, it, this, is, this is almost like John can't wait. <laughs> behold, he's coming. Remember, John was there watching him when he ascended. And, and he heard what the angel said. The same Jesus that left you is coming back in like manner as you've seen him go. And so John is he, probably in his 90s, possibly 100 years old, last book written in the New Testament. He was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He, was, uh, being, he had been excommunicated because of, his, um, because of his proclamation of Jesus and his resurrection. When he wrote his epistle, he said, I'm not telling you something that I heard um, from somebody else. I'm telling you what I saw, what I heard, what I tasted, what I touched. I'm telling you that I had a personal, real, literal, physical encounter with a resurrected Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he said to me is that he's coming back again. And so he says at the beginning of this book, Behold, he is coming. Before he says anything to the church, he reminds the church that he is coming. Before he says anything to a lost and dying world, he said, Behold, he is coming. Coming. This is, this is John saying, and I can't wait for him to come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. When he got to the end of the book, he said, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Jesus' second coming is the grand climax of world history. Everything's going to hinge on that moment in time when he returns. That's when time is no more. That's when eternity begins. He's coming, the Bible said, with clouds. Just like he ascended, he's going to descend. Every eye is going to see him. Now, I, uh, I, I've said this before. Um, I, I thought about that when I read it years and years ago, and I thought, now, when he comes, how's everybody going to see him at one time? Now, now he can do that any way he wants to. Listen, the Lord can flatten the earth. He created it round. He can make it flat. And I don't believe in a flat earth, so don't go telling people our, pe our pastor's a flat earther. But I'm going to tell you, my God is all powerful. If he wanted to flatten the earth and come from the sky and reveal himself to everybody at one time uh, visibly, he could do that. But when John wrote this, he didn't have any idea how everybody on the whole world was going to see him. He didn't know how every eye would see him when he returns. If you look at the end of the book and you look at the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 64, it tells us that he's coming back to the same place that he left from. So you would expect those around Jerusalem, around the Mount of Olivet, would see him when he returns. But we might have to wait a day or two later. But I want you to understand that what's happening on the other side of the world right now, we can see it in real time all day long on every device that we got in our hands. And I'm here to tell you, when Jesus returns, you're going to know that he's returned. Every eye is going to see him. But there's an interesting thing in this passage. It says the kindreds of the earth are going to wail. I told you this is the unveiling of Jesus. This is the, this is the full revelation of who he is. 
The Bible said when he comes back the second time, now this ain't the rapture. This is when he literally comes back. This is, this is uh, after the battle of Armageddon. This is at the end of all things. The earth's going to wail because of him. Terrified of his judgment. He is treading out the wine press. He is pouring out the wrath of God. Now we're going to get there. Um, when we, I'll probably do it on a Wednesday night, but... There's no gladness at his second coming. Because he's coming, the faithful and true witness, who has a, a vesture on his thigh dipped in blood. And he's going to execute war on all the wicked. And, and I believe in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus is through with the sword of his mouth that day, there won't be one unbeliever left standing on the planet. They'll all be dead. I'm going to read to you a passage in, Revel in Matthew rather, chapter 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the earth and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he, that's Jesus, shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Now you notice in that passage of scripture, the saints are in heaven. And Jesus calls them together with him when he returns. That's the same thing, John. That's the same thing Paul wrote um, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, that, that we're going to rise with the dead. That, that he's going to rapture us. And that when, when he comes back, that we're coming with him in that second coming. Not to help him do the battle. He doesn't need any help doing the battle. Listen, he didn't, he didn't need any help forgiving us of our sins. He didn't need any help dying on the cross. He didn't need any help coming forth from a borrowed tomb. Um, he laid his life down. He took it up again. When he comes back, we come with him as his witnesses, as those that have been redeemed by his blood. And when he destroys this world in righteousness, um, in wrath, um, when his wrath is poured out without measure, um, we're going to declare amen. Amen. You've done what's right. You've done what's good. Jesus, when he returns, not one unsafe person is going to be glad to see him return. Not one unsafe person is going to survive the day of his return. Behold, he's coming. I, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to admit this right now. I don't say that enough. I don't think about that enough. I don't tell you that enough. See, I get it. We, we, we get lulled to sleep by the enemy. Peter said that we ought to beware of the scoffers that say, when's he coming? All things are continuing just like it, just like it did when he said it. Listen, he said when they, and, 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 and Peter answered that and said, listen, the long-suffering of our Lord is, is all for the salvation of those who are lost. But that day will come. Peter said that day will come. We don't think about it enough. And I know that some of that is hard for us to wrap our mind around it. But listen to me. Whether you believe it or not, it's not going to change the fact that it's going to happen. 
He said, I don't believe Jesus is coming back. It ain't going to change it. Whether you believe it or not, it's not going to change whether he's coming or not. But whether you believe it or not will change your position, your future in eternity. I know I've used this analogy before, but when my daddy told me I needed to get something done before he got home, If he got home and I didn't have done, guess what? I was in trouble. Now, I'll tell you what I do. Christy and I had a little bit of conversation this week about why Jesus didn't know the time of his return, but the Father only. And I think everything's always originated from the Father. Jesus always said, I don't do anything except the Father tells me to do it. I don't say anything except the Father says, tells me to say it. What you hear of me, you're hearing from the Father because that's all I'm doing is what he said. If, my, if I knew my daddy was going to be home at 6 o'clock, and I knew I could do what I needed to do in a couple hours, I'd start at 4.05. And listen, if Jesus had told us the day that we'd return, I'll tell you what we'd do. We'd procrastinate until the day before. So instead of telling us when he's coming, he just said, behold, I'm coming. And when I come, it's going to be quick. When I, time, when I come, there ain't going to be time to put oil in your lamp. When I come, there ain't going to be time to put on your clothing. When I come, there ain't going to be time for you to get ready or get right. Behold, I'm coming. And, and listen to me. When he comes, in fact, I, when he comes for the rapture of the church, every, the only thing that's going to matter in that moment when he returns is what have you done with him and for him. That's it. That's all that's going to matter. What did you do with him and what did you do for him when he returns? Now, I, I've got to say this. He'll return for you today and nobody else today. Some friends of ours last weekend about this time got news. Their 40-year-old son dropped dead of a heart attack. Now, I know we think, I know all of us in this building think that we're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. It ain't going to happen to us. They don't nobody get up in the morning thinking today's my last day on this earth. People, we don't, we don't think that way. We don't want to think that way, but the reality is, is that could be true. I told Neil Scarrett the other day, because he's, he's healthy. I mean, he got this brain bleed going on all of a sudden, not high blood pressure or anything there. 1994, I woke up with a little gnawing in my stomach. Um, had to go deliver mail, called Cindy in the middle of the mail route and told her, you got to come pick me up because I'm sicker now than I was when I got this morning. I've been drinking Gatorade all morning, and I said, you're going to have to come drive me so I can finish. I got out of the car to, to go to somebody's house and fell down. She helped me get up, got me back. I wouldn't let her take me to the hospital. I had her take me to my mama's. <laughs> Mama fixed anything. Mama couldn't fix it. By the time I got to mom and daddy's, my hands were drawing up. I, could, I got where I couldn't speak. My jaws locked. I couldn't tell them what was going on. My daddy thought I was having a stroke, and they called the ambulance. The ambulance come got me, hauled me to the hospital. They said, he's dehydrated. They started pouring some fluids in me. And I, I couldn't talk, so I couldn't tell them I ain't dehydrated because I drank a gallon of Gatorade this morning trying to settle my stomach. All of a sudden, they all come rushing back in the room. He's septic. He's septic. Started pouring antibiotics in me. I remember, too, I spent seven days in the folks in ICU. If you want to stay in a nice ICU, go to, it ain't open no more. But there ain't nothing separating you from everybody else in that room but curtains. 
I think that was the Lord's way of ending me of all my pride. That doctor came in and she said, in two hours you'd have been gone. Your white blood count was so high. Um, she said, in two hours you'd have been a dead man. I woke up that morning thinking, I got, I'm sick on my stomach. No, I didn't wake up that morning thinking, you're going you're gonna to get a taste today of what it's like to knock on death's door. And I, listen, I wasn't thinking about a whole lot that day except what in the world's happening to me. So Jesus is coming. You hear me? We ain't waiting on nothing. If you, if you listen to these preachers that's looking for signs, all of those signs relate to the second coming. They don't relate to the rapture of the church, and they don't relate to your death date. All of the signs of Jesus' coming are at the end of the tribulation. And I, I, I do, as a matter of fact, believe that you could, if, if you saw the abomination of desolation take place in the temple, I believe that you could count it from the day that he's going to come back. You'll know the day of his second coming. But we'll find this out in the book of Revelation. Even those that knew that he had already raptured the church, even those who knew he had already poured out his wrath upon the world, the Bible said they still refused to repent of their sins. Instead, they tried to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. Let me tell you this. You can't hide yourself from Him. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. All that's going to matter when He comes back is what has been done with Him and for Him. As our, as our musicians come this morning, I want to ask you just a simple question. When, when you start thinking about Jesus' return, we're, going, we're not going to say a whole lot about that until we get to chapter 4 and 5 and beyond. But how does that make you feel right now? Does it make you anxious? Does it make you afraid? John said in his first epistle that we all live in such, our lives in such a way that we won't be ashamed at his coming. Listen, I think we ought to be able to get up in the morning and say, and, and look up to the heavens and say, Lord, today would be a good day for you to come again. We ought to look for it. The, the, the apostles in the New Testament looked forward with anticipation to Christ's return. Can you look forward to his return this morning with anticipation? Or will you look at it in fear and trepidation? I think it says a lot about where we are in our relationship with Christ. But you don't have to leave here like you came in. Let's stand together. Thank you for your word, Lord. Just scratching the surface of this incredible book this morning. So much to unpack. So much to understand. So much to apply. I just pray it help us to understand and know this morning that all of our hope is in Jesus. It has to be. All of our hope for our sins past. All of our hope for strength in the future. All of our hope of, of heaven, eternal life. All of it is wrapped up in Jesus. It's imperative that we have a relationship with Him. And so I pray this morning, if there's one in this building that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray for the saints that are here, God. Help us to be prepared, looking earnestly, longing for the day that you return. There's nothing on this earth that can compare 
with the glory that's going to be revealed to us when we see Jesus. Have your will and your way in this invitation. Anything and everything you do, we'll praise you for in Jesus' name. Amen.